0: You can um, turn in your your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, We are really uh, beginning to dig dig deep into the author's main argument of the whole letter. Uh, Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. That's, That's his main point of over half the book. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. And really, the author has already argued for the superiority of Jesus in several areas, hasn't he? You go way back to chapter 1, and he's, he's, better, than, he's better than the prophets because in these latter days, he's, he's spoken to us through his Son. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. But the heart of this letter is to communicate that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And I want to take a moment to ask this question. Why is that the heart of this book? Why why does he need to communicate that? Of all the things, why is that the biggest point? It has to do with access to God. Man's problem is we're separated from God. That's the problem. Sin separates man from God. We cannot get to him uh, by any means of our own. Um, Isaiah 59 Really says it well, Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2. It says this Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, this is to Israel, and it's certainly true that that's a problem for Israel, but that's not just Israel's problem, it's man's problem. It's not that God cannot hear. It's not that He cannot save. It's that He will not hear. That's what He says there. Our sins separate us from God. We need something or we need someone to bring us to God. If you think about the major religions of the world, they will all offer you some way to God or at least to their version or understanding of what God is. You think about Islam and it teaches that if you perform certain duties, particularly the five pillars of faith, you will get to Allah, who is their God. And those things are you must uh, recite the statement of faith, the Shahada; You must pray five times a day. You must uh, give 2.5% two, two of your income, uh, giving alms. You must follow Ramadan, that month-long fast. And you must make a, a, a pilgrimage to Mecca. And if you can't, someone has to do it for you. So you've got to do five, five things if you wanted to follow Islam, and then hopefully, hopefully you'll you'll get to Allah. Catholicism teaches faith in Christ; it does teach that, but plus good works and grace conferred through the seven sacraments of the Church will get you to God. So, seven things. Hinduism seeks to unite the soul with Brahma, which is the ultimate reality, and it, it, it wants you to do that through a threefold path. Well, that one sounds better. I'll take the only the three. And works, knowledge, and devotion. Or maybe you want Hinduism, which teaches a middle, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Buddhism, a middle way, a spiritual path to salvation called the Eightfold Path. Oh, there's a lot there. You have to have the right viewpoint, the right aspiration, the right speech, the right behavior, the right occupation, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right meditation. Good luck. And then Judaism, and there's just all types of Judaism even today with Orthodox and conservative and Reformed, and some follow the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Torah religiously. But whatever they fall under, they all observe the Sabbath and the holy days and those conforming to those uh, things, and, and hopefully they'll have access to God. All the major religions of the world all teach some kind of path or access to God. Christianity teaches something completely different. It's it's not based on anything man can do. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Did you see that there? He suffered that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. So how does the author here of Hebrews, how, how is he trying to get these, these Jews, that's his audience, to understand the point? See, the Jews were given by God himself a temporary or limited access to God through the Levitical priesthood, you see? They had access to God sort of covered in their minds. But when you look at it, you can really ask this question, was it really able to offer access to God? I mean, individually, did individuals have access to God? And that really becomes the crux of the argument. In fact, if you go ahead and look to verse 19 of chapter 7, you can see it comes up there. Verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you see that? His whole point is to show them that the better hope, which will allow us to draw near to God, is available. That that better hope he mentioned, we looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 6, verse 19. Just look at that again. Chapter 6, verse 19. He said, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the what? The presence. Do you see that? So there it is. It's about access to God, the presence that's behind the veil, the place that man did not have access to, only one, the high priest, and only that was once a year. So the author has launched into this very important topic with an argument centered around a mysterious Old Testament figure that we really dug into last week, Melchizedek. He was a king, but he was also a priest. And we're told that he was priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the the, the God who is possessor of heaven and earth. Not Yahweh, not Jehovah, not the the covenant name of God to Israel. This priest was priest to the God who possesses heaven and earth. And this priesthood was established long before the Levitical uh, priesthood and I don't have time to recap all that we looked into. It was meaty. There was a lot. A lot of people slept and, 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 and you know, just watch it on slow-mo. But just to, just to recap, Genesis 14 is where you meet Melchizedek. And all the author has done is he, in chapter 7, recapped very slowly uh, what happened in Genesis 14. Abraham, after the battle against the kings and rescuing his nephew Lot, runs into... This Melchizedek, seemingly from nowhere, he, he, we told he, he met the king of Sodom, and the next thing we know, this Melchizedek is there. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Melchizedek, the name, means king of righteousness. So he's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And he comes out with bread and wine, and he, and he blesses Abraham right in front of uh, the, the king of Sodom. And then we're told Abraham tithes to him from the spoils of war, he gives him a tenth of, of all. It's an amazing little account. And then that's it. That's all you see of this Melchizedek. There's there's nothing else. Not until Psalm 110, verse 4, and that's years and years and years later. So Melchizedek's name and his title as, as, as priest and as king, that all foreshadows the priesthood of Christ. I don't want to spoil it if you didn't watch last week, but Melchizedek is an Old Testament type. It's a type, a type of Christ. Typology in the Old Testament is is basically something, you could look at a person or a ceremony or a ritual, something that's in the Old Testament that finds its counterpart in the New. The type is in the Old, the antitype is in the New, and that is Melchizedek. The author wasn't looking at Melchizedek and trying to tell us that he was this super angel and Shem and all these different things we talked about, nor was he trying to say that he himself was Jesus but he was a type of Christ to come. And so we looked at this, and his argument was trying to focus in on Abraham. Abraham, if Abraham met this guy Melchizedek, who who was greater? Because Abraham, let's think about it, he's the father of the faith. He's the friend of God. Well, Abraham tithed. He gave of his spoils to Melchizedek. In addition, Melchizedek blessed him. The blesser is always greater than the blessee, okay? So his point was Melchizedek is, is greater, and the main point is because he's a type of Christ, then Jesus is a superior priest to the entire Levitical priest, priestly system. And his main source for his, his, his really his, his Old Testament support is Psalm 110, verse 4. Here it is again, just to remind you. This is David. Who wrote this? The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We hear of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, then nothing for a thousand years, and David comes out with this. (laughs) This is the son being promised by the Father, actually be swearing by the Father, that I will make him a priest forever. He'll be a priest, but he'll be a priest according to which order? The Levitical priesthood? Nope, doesn't say that. It says, according to some random guy we met back in Genesis 14, a guy named Melchizedek, and I've never met a Melchizedek today. No one names their kid Melchizedek for obvious reasons. But in the minds of a Jew, to accept Jesus as a priest of any kind, much less a superior priest, would be a very difficult thing to do. Because it would seem like they would need to accept something entirely new. Oh, now you're coming along and telling me there's a whole brand new thing God has done that's never been done before. But you see, through the existence of Melchizedek, because he existed in in Scripture in Genesis 14 and had an encounter with Abraham, the father of the faith, he is showing us that that happened before the Levitical priesthood was ever established there actually is not something entirely new. It's actually something that already existed, established by God way back in the days of Abraham. Amazing. So the question is, the the, author is trying to answer is is in this section here, now that he kind of talked about Melchizedek is is the why. Okay. Melchizedek is a new order and you're saying Jesus is of that new order. Well, why? Why do we need a new order? Why do we need a new priesthood? And that's The sermon's title today, The New Priesthood, but it's only part one because we're not going to get through it all. The New Priesthood, part one, we're looking at chapter seven and we're looking at verses 11 through 19. I highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's on Mikael's deck if you want the full picture because there's a lot more to it. But for time's sake today, we're going to look at verses 11 to 19. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke, concerning, uh, spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, we recognize that we are in uh, deep uh, waters here as we talk about these, these deep truths. But Lord, we, um, we have your spirit, uh, the spirit that can lead us into truth. And Lord, I just pray that you would just open up our minds, open up the wonderful truths of this passage to us, Lord, that our hearts might be encouraged and enriched by the wonderful uh, argument that this author puts forward. Jesus is a better priest. So lead us into your word today for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just two quick points today, really. First, the author is wanting to show us the imperfection of the old priesthood. It was not perfect, it was imperfect. Why do we need a new one? Well, the old one really wasn't quite uh, perfect. So look at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Okay, so the argument goes like this. Since Melchizedek was was greater than Abraham, that was his argument last week that we looked at that, and since a priest like Melchizedek is promised, by Psalm 110, verse 4, Okay, there would be a priest order coming, like Melchizedek. Then the Levitical priesthood was clearly not perfect. That's his argument. Otherwise, what reason would God have for replacing it? Why would you replace it? But God promised that it, another priest would come. So it needed replacing. Now, this word perfect and perfection is very important in Hebrews. We've actually seen it a few times. Perfection here is teliosis. And it has to do with fulfillment or uh, completion. When we see perfection in scripture and this word in scripture, yes, we have places particularly by Paul where it means maturity, uh, where it means full grown, but that is never the case in Hebrews. Interestingly, the author of Hebrews, that's one of the reasons I don't think Paul wrote it, doesn't use perfection that way. In Hebrews, it has a more specific meaning in reference to salvation through in, in Christ, that he is the perfect fulfillment of everything that the, w- was pictured in the Old Testament. He is the consummation of everything, the fulfillment. Does that make sense? And so here he's saying, if that fulfillment were really existing in the Levitical priesthood, then why did he need to replace it? Why this whole order of Melchizedek? Why not just call someone according to the order of Aaron again? So remember, you have the tribe of Levi, but Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons, they were the specific uh, family that you had to belong to. So not only did you have to be of the tribe of Levi, you had to be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest. So here you have this word perfection, and it's used again in chapter 10, verses 14, just to give you another idea of how it's used. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see that? You're perfected forever. You have the, the full consummation of everything, forever. There's not more to do. It's a forever. It's finalized. Do you see that? A similar word is actually used later in our passage in verse 19, and we already looked at verse 19, but you can look there again. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. Do you see that? That word perfect is a similar word. It's uh, teleao, and again, it means accomplished or consummated or, or, or finished. He's saying the law didn't do that. It didn't accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. And here's the main problem. The Levitical priesthood could not help us draw near to God. It couldn't get us. It couldn't get us there. It uh, didn't give us access to him. If you were a high priest, you were the only one that could enter in behind the veil and only once a year and only after you offered sacrifices for your sins and for the sins of the people. And then you wouldn't return there for a whole year. There was one person who could come into the presence of God, and even that wasn't the full presence of God. That was the Shekinah glory. It symbolized his presence. But people need full access to God. That's our whole problem. We need to be able to draw near to him. Listen, that's the gospel. When you are sharing the gospel, you're telling people, I hope you're telling people, you're a sinner and your sin separates you from God. And if you're not with God, you're against God. And he is against you. And so we need, we need to be able to draw near to God. And that's the question. How do we get to God? Jesus was very plain about that, wasn't he? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because you need someone to bring you to God. You've been separated. So you can't get there. You need a priest. And that old high priest, the Levitical system, he couldn't even get you there. It's only through Jesus that we have access to the Father. Okay? Now, if it's only through Jesus that we have access to the Father, then could we have had any kind of real access to him prior to Jesus? If it's only through Jesus then could they have really had that? Otherwise, what what need do you have of Jesus? You see the whole issue here they're having. So here's a question. If the Levitical priesthood truly provided access to God, then then why does it need replacing? That's what he's, he's trying to set up, and his answer is it didn't provide access to God. That's why it needed replacing. But the author adds another point, which we're going to elaborate in the next verse, but just look at it. It says, for under it, the people received the law. Did you see that there in verse 11? Under it. Under what? Under the Levitical priesthood. With the law came the priesthood. With the priesthood came the law. They came together. That was the Mosaic law. And now you'll understand what verse 12 is talking about when we go there. Look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So if the priesthood has to change, it needs something better than the law itself has to be changed as well. Now, the priesthood has been changed because David prophesied of a, another order, the order of Melchizedek. And the Levitical priesthood wasn't perfect. It was unable to bring people to God. So it was changed. Now that word change is also another important word. We're looking at a lot of Greek words today, by the way, because um, he's thrown a lot of really important ones in here. Metatithemi, okay? Metatithemi. It simply means to put one thing in place of another. It's been replaced. Changed. Paul uses that same uh, word as well when he is um, he's confronting uh, the Galatians. He's confronting them. You might remember for replacing the true gospel of Christ. He replaces it with they replace it with a different gospel. He's not he's not saying that you've added to the gospel and made it better or you've done this. He's telling them you've completely changed it. It's in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, metatitheme, gospel. So the author's not saying that the priesthood has merely been enhanced or made better some way. He's saying it's been entirely replaced. So here's the point. Christianity is not an enhanced Judaism. Do you understand that? It's not Judaism was great, but it was made more perfect. No, Judaism has been replaced entirely. It has been changed completely. It needed a change. He says not only did the priesthood have to be changed, but so did the law have to be changed. That's important. Now, when I say the law has been changed, you must understand I don't mean God's moral law found in the Ten Commandments. Those are bound up at God's nature, and we looked at God's nature being immutable, unchangeable, So since God doesn't change, those moral laws don't change. Adultery, stealing, lying, murder, they're wrong in the Old Testament. Guess what? They're wrong today. They're wrong in the New. And Jesus made that clear in his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he even strengthened the standards uh, there, didn't he? He said, if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you murdered. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's as if you committed adultery. So the moral law doesn't change. So what does change? What is he talking about here? The Mosaic law concerning priests. With the priesthood came law, ceremonial law, sacrificial law. law of who could be priest? Levites of the order of Aaron. And that's specifically what Jesus came to fulfill, the ceremonial, sacrificial law. Matthew 5:17 in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. So there's no longer an external principle. That's the idea. All of that was external, wasn't it? But now instead it's internal. It's all internal change. The external sacrificial ceremonial law, that's all replaced by Christ. He has to be a new priest of a new order. And I want to show you that this is very plain. Even before Jesus' death and resurrection, God gave um, Jesus' apostles a graphic illustration uh, or demonstration of the the passing of the old with Jesus coming in. And it's in Mark chapter 9. Would you just uh, take a moment to look at this with me? In Mark chapter 9, you know this well. This is the uh, Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9. And he took a, a few of his disciples up there with him. But I want to show you this. This is really pretty amazing. In Mark 9, beginning in verse 2, it says says this. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What's transfigured? Well, it tells us his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, Such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So you have Elijah, who represents the prophets, you have Moses, who represents the law, and they're talking to Jesus, who represents the new covenant. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles for you, right? One for Moses and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. (laughs) And a cloud came, this is important, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. There you have the law, you have the prophets, you have Jesus. The cloud comes in and a voice says, I want you to listen to Jesus. The cloud goes away and who's there? Only Jesus. You see who's replaced? The law and the prophets. It's Jesus alone. And God says, I want you to hear him. No longer are you listening to that. It's the ceremonial law. Yes, we don't steal, we don't kill, we don't do the things. It's the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law. The external things have been taken away. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. That's the author's point here. The whole priestly system, its law has been replaced by Christ. Look at verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, I mentioned actually this last week in relation to what Melchizedek said in verse 3. Just peek back at it in chapter 7, verse 3 he didn't say this, but this was about Melchizedek. It says this, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. Wow. Who is this guy? What was that about? Well, as far as scripture is concerned, as far as what scripture reveals about Melchizedek, he has no genealogy. He just appears on the scene out of nowhere. It's, it's as if he has None of those things. There's no information as to who his father is, no information as to his mother. He has no recorded birth date. He has no uh, death, day of death, no genealogy, nothing to prove his heritage, his pedigree. Now, why is that that important? Because the priestly line was from the tribe of Levi and specifically from Aaron. Now, I mentioned that and set that up last week, but we didn't look at Scripture verses to support it because there was just too much to go through. But let me just show you a couple. This began in Exodus 28. In Exodus 28, this is where it starts. Verse 1, it says, "...now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest." You see, God chose Aaron and his sons. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. And as you read through Exodus 28, 29, 30, over and over and over and over again, it says, take your sons, take them, take Aaron, consecrate them, set them apart. They're going to be priests. In fact, in 29, 9, it says, the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So God had established that the, the, the tribe of Levi would be the priests. There's no precedent in scripture where God allowed other tribes To minister as priests. Now, I say where God allowed it. (laughs) There were other tribes. There were the people that ministered to priests, but they did it in disobedience to God. Uh, They did it against God. You might remember in the divided kingdom, that's where I am in my reading, and that's why I'm sharing this example, because I just read it. During Solomon's divided kingdom, remember uh, Jeroboam takes the ten tribes to the north and Rehoboam takes the two of the south. Jeroboam in the north does not have Jerusalem. He doesn't have the temple, so he sets up his own system of worship up there. Well, if you're going to set up your own system of worship, you're going to need what? Your own priests, and that's what he did, and we're told in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 31, that he made shrines on the high places, and he made priests, notice what it says, from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi, it tells us that because it's telling us that he is in disobedience. He just, he just made people priests, even if they weren't of the tribe of Levi. And later in chapter 13, verse 33, it says, After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated them. So even if people came up and said, hey, I, I feel like I could be a priest. Yeah, come on up. You're a priest, man. He just made people priests. In fact, he made himself priests. He became one of the priests of the high places. And that's why when you continue to read about uh, Jeroboam at that time, it over, over and over again says that God was angry with Jeroboam because he made Israel sin. How did he make Israel sin? He chose priests for himself, and he made people go to the priests. They weren't consecrated by God. So he made Israel fall into sin. God did not allow outside the tribe of Levi anyone to be uh, priests. And so here what the author is doing, he's confessing, yeah, G- Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He, he's, he's uh, it says, um, from another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. No man was allowed to officiate from the altar that wasn't of the tribe of Levi. In fact, he says, it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. All right? So nowhere did Moses ever say, and yeah, some, some you know, tribe of Judah, they can do priesthood do priestly things too. No, Moses never spoke of that. So you see the imperfection here. It was it was not a system that could bring people to God. We needed a higher order. We needed one of Melchizedek's order that um, could change the law associated with the priesthood. And the priesthood itself was assigned to, to, to people of a certain tribe. It had to break those boundaries. It was imperfect. And so now we look at the perfection of the new priesthood. That was the imperfection. Here's the perfection of the new priesthood. Look at verse 15. It says, "...and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest." Now, here this word evident is used, and it was also used in verse 14. But I want to show you uh, really quickly here. There's a difference of words used, okay? The word back in verse 14, translated evident, is this word, uh, pra de los, and it means openly known to all. So look at that, that evident word in verse 14. It is evident that our Lord arose from the tribe of Judah. It's openly known to all that our Lord arose from Judah. What's he saying? Jesus has a genealogy. It's been written down and you can read it. It's openly known to all. He doesn't come from the tribe of, of Levi. And that's true. It's recorded in both Matthew and Luke, his genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right at the beginning, he's the son of David who was of the tribe of Judah. But here in verse 15... He says this word again, doesn't he? He says, for it is far more evident, far more evident. Now, this word evident is actually a different word in the Greek. It's elos. It means thoroughly clear. So one is openly known to all. Anyone can read it. But here it's thoroughly clear. It's plain. It's just evident. It's far more clear is what he's saying. What is far more clear? It's far more clear... If in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. Now, how, how is it clear? How has God made that clear? How has he unmistakably communicated that a new priesthood has arrived? What's very clear, what's openly known to all, is that Jesus doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. That's openly known. But how is it more clear that God has communicated that a new priesthood has arrived? That's his argument. Two ways. Two ways. He's done it through two things, and one is his power. Notice what it says, that another priest in the likeness of Melchizedek arises. Do you see that word arises? That word arises is anisteme. It's the same word all through the New Testament that speaks of Jesus rising from the dead. Another priest has arisen, arises, that is only one priest I know of, no other other priest rose from the dead. It's Jesus. He has shown it by his power through the resurrection of Christ. But notice it says another priest. That's also important. You might remember, we've talked about this a few different times along uh, the way in different studies, that there's two Greek words for another. One is alos, which means another of the same kind, and heteros, which is another of a different kind. If I am looking at this and, and Jesus is another priest. Is he just another of the same kind? Is he just a priest, like a Levitical priesthood? Or is he another of a different kind? Which would you guess is here? It's heteros. He's another of a different kind. That's the word that's used here. He is another priest, but he is a, of a different kind. He's of a different order from those who ministered in the tabernacle and in the temple. And his resurrection secured him as the perfect new priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Because that order, unlike the Levitical priesthood, was was to be a different order. It was to be an eternal order. Look at verse uh, 16. So there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Levitical priesthood was a was a priesthood, he says, that was according to the fleshly commandment. Did you see that? The fleshly commandment. This is what he means. It was, it was a priesthood that was based on a legal command concerning physical descent. All you needed to do if you wanted to be a priest was to have the right family tree. That is it. There was nothing to do with character, nothing to do with ability, nothing to do with your personality or, or holiness. And that's why you read, and there are some awful priests along the way. Horrible. It was expected that a priest be godly, but there are just plenty of examples in Scripture that that was not always the case, and God punished them severely. You see, it was not perfect. It wasn't perfect. You didn't know what you were going to get. But Jesus doesn't come from the family tree of Levi. He doesn't come according to a fleshly commandment, Right? And neither did Melchizedek. He doesn't come from the family tree of, uh, uh, of Levi. Anyone in the family tree of Aaron, every liturgical priest, every one of them has died. None of them remained. So we need a priest to come in the likeness of Melchizedek, we're told, meaning the one that would come without the genealogical background. Jesus definitely has a different genealogy, but he says it's far more evident that a new Melchizedek has come. How is it far more evident? He has arisen. It's by the power of the resurrection. You know, we're told uh, through Scripture what that has done for us. In 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because Christ rose from the dead. But have you ever thought about that in the context of Him being a priest? That's the idea here. See these Jews, they would have believed certainly that Jesus died and rose again. they would have believed in the resurrection. You would think that would be definitive proof, right but it, the hang up for them is the priesthood that 's the hang up. Well, God established the priesthood, God established the priesthood, and he 's saying, yep, yeah, he did also the Melchizedek priesthood, and Jesus has come according to that order because the old one it just didn 't work. it had to be replaced. It should be far more evident, it should be abundantly clear that Jesus is a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek and is different, a different kind of priest than the Levitical priesthood because he is arisen, and he is arisen, we're told, according to the power of an endless life. Do you see that there? According to the power of an endless life. That word endless, aketelotos, aketelotos means not subject to destruction. That's Endless. It can't be destroyed. He doesn't die. He has come with a, a not with a physical body like a, a typical uh, Levite. Jesus' lineage, his genealogy, had nothing to do with, with that kind of heritage. It had to do with eternal power. He was raised from the, the, the dead. He's conquered death. And so he's come according to the power of, of an endless life. And he's saying, you guys should recognize that just by knowing what Jesus did, that he should be a higher priest than any priest you've ever known. Romans 8, 34 says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? I love his progression there. Yeah, Christ died. Oh, but he also rose. Uh, from the, oh, he's also at the right hand of God. Oh, and he makes intercession. He's alive, <laughs> is what he's saying. And he's working. He's actively acting as your priest right now. He died, but he's arisen. And he, what did what did Hebrews 1 say? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what's he doing there? He's interceding for you and I. He's acting as priest. Incredible. So not only had God, unmistakably communicated that a new priesthood had arrived through a resurrected Christ. That's his power, but he communicated it through his word. Look at verse 17. Here it is. He's just testifying, again, that he communicated it through the scripture. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is Psalm 110, verse 4. Again, his central support. God the Father, swearing to God the Son, that he would make... He would make him a priest forever. And that's the point. He's an eternal priesthood. That won't end. All priests die. Jesus, his priesthood, will never end. Amazing. So his priesthood will be endless because he has indestructible life, and God promised that by his word. And the final two verses summarize his whole argument, and they do it beautifully with a on the one hand, and on the other hand, kind of a contrast. Let's look at those, and we'll we'll end, wrap this up. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. So there's the one the one hand, the former commandment, or the old Levitical system, okay? That old law, that's been annulled, it says. That word annulling, atathetesis, something like that, means rejected. It means put away. It's annulled. It, I've put that completely uh, away. And that word is important to understand. It's used in chapter 9 as well in, in, in reference to putting away of sin. It's been put away. It's rejected. It's completely annulled, taken care of. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, he says, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus appears at the end of the ages, we're told here, to put away sin, to reject it completely, by how? Sacrificing himself. He's annulled it. It has no power any longer because he's paid the penalty. So the former commandment, the sacrificial, the ceremonial law concerning the priesthood, with all of its external practices, that's been rejected is what he's saying. The old priesthood was rejected because of its two things. It says its weakness and its unprofitableness. Its weakness, its feeble. It, it could reveal sin. It could cover it temporarily, but it could do nothing to remove it entirely. You had to do it year after year. And that's going to be his argument as we continue to go through this. And I've shown you some of those verses ahead of time just to let you see that. That's his argument. It didn't, it didn't take it away completely. It's also unprofitable. The word means useless. It gave no real hope. No real hope came from that. Because why? It provided no real forgiveness of sins. You you, you were back there again every single year. You knew you had to go atone for your sin, and you do it constantly. Isn't it wonderful to know that you and I don't have to atone for our sin? Like, ever. We can ask forgiveness for our sins because we want a clear conscience before him, we want to make ourselves right. We, want, we don't want to damage that relationship, but you don't atone for your sin. And let me tell you, if you struggle with that, if you, if you really struggle with condemnation, you haven't quite understood what Jesus did for you. There is no condemnation. Your sins have been paid for, atoned for. We don't go back to him and say, ah, oh, atone for my sin again, Jesus. He's done it once, and it's all it took. Once, one time. But the old law, it was useless. It gave no real hope because it offered no real forgiveness of sins. In fact, he says here in verse 19, it made nothing perfect. It, it, it finalized nothing. It completed nothing. It gave man no real way to draw near to God. You wouldn't be sure if you could draw near to God. What if you had sin? Think about your sins being atoned once a year. Just think about that. Right? That was probably your most holy day. Right, And you brought that lamb and you're walking up those steps and you're probably like, oh, this is going to be the great. And you sacrifice that animal and you're walking. I feel so clean. I feel so right with God. You stumble on the first step. You curse out loud. You go, oh, I'm going to have a whole year go. It made nothing perfect. Nothing. Provided no real way for man to feel like they could draw near to God. That's the one hand. What's well, the other hand? Verse 19 again. On the other hand. There is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. See, we don't merely have a better quality of hope. That's not what he's saying. Our hope is a better hope because of the effectiveness of the new priesthood, you see. The new priesthood is effective. You can count on it that your sins have been atoned for. You can count on it that the veil has been torn. You can count on it that you can boldly, Walk in to that throne room of grace because of the priesthood of Christ, not because of anything you have done. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll close with this, verses 19 to 22, says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, see, it's new, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I know we're not there yet in chapter 10, but isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to know that there is a better hope? That better hope allows us to draw near to God? You know, people want to know how to get to God. I'm sure you've been asked that question How do I get to God? How do I get to God? And all kinds of ideas in the world. I just gave you the five major religions there outside of Christianity, but all kinds of ideas about how to get to God. There's only one real way to God because there's only one new priesthood. Jesus came in this new priesthood. Have you ever associated that with some guy named Melchizedek in the Old Testament? (laughs) That God, in his infinite wisdom, would have placed this man, a real man that existed in real history, in real time, the time of Abraham, so that one day Jesus could come and overthrow the whole Levitical system that never worked, that was old and imperfect, and say, no, I'm of a new order, but it's not entirely new. God, in his infinite wisdom, had placed it there to begin with, even before the Levitical priesthood, so that it is anew, but it's a new according to this order, an eternal one and a perfect one. Incredible. This is just part one, and we'll continue into part two uh, next week. But isn't it no, uh, amazing to know that we have access to God? Yeah. You can draw near to Him. Yeah. Amazing. Let me pray. Yeah. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the wonderful truths of Scripture. Lord, for uh, this book of Hebrews particularly, Lord, that tackles such, such uh, subjects like this. We, we just don't find these kind of arguments much in Scripture. We know this is unique as he is dealing with um, a Jewish mindset, a Jewish understanding of the old versus the new. And yet, Lord, it's so even practical for us to understand today, as we really have a tendency to try to fall back on old ways, to to find ways to you, uh, Lord. But the only way to God is through Christ, the only high priest that we have and Lord, I just thank you that our sins are atoned for, they've forgiven, that you're an effective high priest, that you've done the work. It's done, it's finished. Yes, we sin, yes, we fall short, we can come to you. First John tells us that if we uh, confess with our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that we can do that every single day. We can come to you and just make ourselves right with you by, by asking for forgiveness. But that is, that is not the atoning work, the atoning work's been done, it's finished. Thank you, Lord. What an amazing high priest you are. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.